What's the first thing we think of when we think of the American dream? To quote Dr. Facilier of Princess and the Frog, it's the greenest of green that you need. Mint. Paper. Dough. Benjamins. You guessed it. I'm talking about the big cha-ching money bags us Asians are apparently sitting on in America. That's not just a myth, right? Well, folks, today... I need you to buckle up because we're diving deep into the socioeconomic situation of model minorities. And I mean deep. And I have to warn you, it's nothing like you've seen on TV. I'm Nidhi Shastri, and this is Model Minority Uniquely American. I just wanted to let you guys know that this particular episode is going to be split into two parts. So make sure you check out the second part um, if you feel like this part ends abruptly. I'm doing this because A, I had a lot of content for this episode, and B, I really wanted to make sure that I could put out a lengthy version of every um, story that I use. So definitely go check out part two of the crazy not so rich Asians episode. So... I'm sure many of you have heard about the movie Crazy Rich Asians. It shook ratings and was hailed as a hallmark for Asian representation on the big screen last year. One of the things it was able to show was the huge class difference between the main character, Rachel, who's from New York City, and her crazy rich boyfriend, Nick Young. It's based off a book by Kevin Kwan. Now, in this sense, the film did a good job in showing the struggle many Asian immigrants, especially single mother families, face in the States, even if it was contrasted with the most grandiose Asian family that you, or in this case, good writing, could find. And while that definitely is an accurate representation for some parts of the world, in today's episode, I'm going to show you that that's largely not the case for everyone. Also, I feel obliged to mention that while we're on the topic, the film left a really crappy reality for a lack of South Asian and Southeast Asian representation. This is contrasted to the idea that Crazy Rich Asian was seen as a huge step for all Asians, and it relies on the idea that East Asians are the quote-unquote real Asians. In addition to this, the movie had a very odd scene centered around two South Asian Sikh guards, and that simply was not okay. Of course, this only scratches the surface of the complexity of the film in terms of how they casted and represented Asians. Now, while I'd love to make this a conversation about that, this episode is dedicated to disproving the crazy rich part of the Asians. So if you want to see an episode on crazy rich Asians, head over to our Facebook page and drop me a note. <clears throat> now that that's settled, let's jump right into it. Welcome to the nitty-gritty stats and statistics of the Asian-American class divide. Crazy, not-so-rich Asians. As of the late 2000s, Asians have quickly overtaken the amount of Hispanic and Latino immigrants in the United States to be the fastest-growing both undocumented and documented racial group in the United States. And a 2018 article in the Washington Post points out how the gap between rich and poor has been the fastest growing and the widest amongst Asians who have displaced Black Americans as the most economically divided racial group in the United States. I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew Kung, an Asian-American photographer from the Bay Area who works on Asian identity and masculinity and has shed a light on some of the hidden pockets of the Asian community. His work on the Chinese community in the Mississippi Delta was featured in the New York Times, 
Or you can also read his recent op-ed in CNN on the desexualization of the Asian-American male. Uh, my name is Andrew Kung. I am born and raised in San Francisco, California. I am Chinese-American. I grew up in the Bay Area, went to high school there, went to college at UC Berkeley, um, studied in the business program, and so naturally worked at LinkedIn for about three years. But during that time, and just a little bit before, I picked up a liking to photography. So I started off shooting a lot of landscape photos and uh, met one of my really close friends at LinkedIn. Um, and LinkedIn moved me to New York as a result. Um, so I could pursue my passion of photography. Um, yeah, now I've been a photographer ever since for the past uh, three three years. Yeah, the model minority myth. Um, it's been a theme in a lot of my personal projects. Um, just a little bit of backdrop. You know, growing up in the Bay Area, uh, surra- I was surrounded by a lot of other fellow Asian Americans. You know, I wasn't really forced to think about my identity and what it meant to me back then because I thought it was a norm. Um, it wasn't until my first big personal project in photography where I photographed a small Chinese population along the Mississippi Delta that I realized that there was such a such a varied experience of what it means to be Asian American, you know, depending on where you live in the US. It's really a monolithic way to capture all experiences of all Asian Americans in a very glorified manner in that, you know, we all just put our heads down passively and quietly, work hard, go to good schools, get good jobs, make good money. So really, you don't have to worry about Asian Americans because they're doing well for themselves. You know, and I think that is so problematic, you know, like in New York, the Asian Americans actually have the highest poverty rate, but no one knows about it because of the model minority myth, you know, so it's this level of almost invisibility that has been perpetuated and is something that we need to really dive into um, when we talk about, you know, challenges like poverty, like racism, especially, especially in what's happening in today's world with COVID-19. Andrew's right. According to a 2017 article in the Huffington Post titled, Asian Americans have the highest poverty rates in New York City. Over a quarter of Asians in New York City live under the poverty line, and one out of four Asian seniors live in poverty. This article uses data from the Asian American Federation Census Information Center. This high poverty rate is despite the fact that the majority of Asian households are two-parent households, meaning that Asians are stratified into low-income jobs in New York City. And furthermore, Asian Americans aren't receiving as many resources in New York despite this reality. From 2002 to 2014, a 13-year period, they received just 1.4% of the city's social service funds. And if we zoom out our lens, we see poverty is a significant issue for Asians and Asian Americans across the nation. In an article from August of 2018 in the New York Times titled, How Crazy Rich Asians Have Led to the Largest Income Gap in the United States, it pointed out how the highest earning Asians in the U.S. made, get this, 10.7 times the amount the poorest Asians did in 2016. That is a gap larger than any other racial group in the United States and one that is continuously rising. In addition to this, using info from the Pew Research Center, authors Adil Hassan and Audrey Carlson were able to provide stats that showed that while this trend mirrors that of other racial groups, income inequality has accelerated the fastest among the Asian racial group. Now, when you think of the race Asian, who do you think of? You might be thinking of East Asians, such as people from China, Korea, and Japan, like the ones you saw in Crazy Rich Asians. 
However, South Asians and Southeast Asians combined now outnumber the amount of East Asians in the United States, according to research done by Columbia University, which was also featured in the article from the New York Times. Family-sponsored migration remains the largest source of Asian immigration across Asian ethnicity groups. And according to the Pew Research Center, Asian Americans living below the poverty line make up 12.6 of the Asian American population. The U.S. average of people living under the poverty line is 12.4. Poverty rates also vary amongst different Asians. For example, poverty rates amongst Southeast Asians are even higher. For Hmong Americans, 37.8%. For Lao Asians, it's 18.5%. For Vietnamese people, it's 16.6%. And for Burmese people, it's 35%. This trend continues when you look at South Asian immigrants. Now, 10% of South Asian families in the U.S. live under the poverty line, but the benefits received also vary by South Asian origin group. For example, among South Asians, Pakistanis have a poverty rate of 15.8%, Nepalis 23.9%, Bangladeshis 24.2%, and for Bhutanese immigrants, 33.3%. Statistics are difficult to parse. Even for me, as I was researching this, I had to spend a decent amount of time just figuring out how to phrase them to become digestible. And while I want to stray away from throwing stats at you at full force, my main takeaway is truly how little we know about the variations of economic status and generational economic mobility for different Asian demographics. We need to be conducting more diverse and more inclusive studies on Asian Americans and then writing about them in a proper way that does not perpetuate the model minority myth at hand. So what exactly is leading to this huge disparity, not only between the Asian racial communities, but also in how we're perceived by others? Well, remember Dr. Yoon Pak from episode one? Let's take a look at what she had to say about this. So something like the U.S. Census, the Pew Reports, would certainly indicate like the median income household average of Asian Americans are slightly higher. But um, other researchers would suggest that it's also because you have more earners within uh, Asian American families. So it's not just about the nuclear family, but you might have kids, right? You might have I don't know, elderly in there, but you have more family who are contributing to the household income. Rather than many nuclear families, you might have one uh, income earner, right? So it's also given the kind of statistics and data that might be out there, we need to ask better questions of the data. Now, not everyone from India or China is well-educated and adjusted. In fact, to think that largely contrasts how these countries are perceived in the media and the world today. However, in the United States, if you want to immigrate over from any of these places, you need to have proof that you're going to be useful. And the other way that we can frame it is, you're telling me then that every single person who lives in China or in India, the billions of people, every single one of them, right, would also kind of carry these kinds of same characteristic traits or biological basis of what, you know, uh, academic success might be. Um, I would just say it's it's a process of human condition. According to AAPI data, which publishes demographic data and policy research on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, the disparity in income comes from the difference between immigration motivation. People from India or China are often only allowed to immigrate using skill-based visas, which is why you see many Asians who are indeed lawyers, doctors, and engineers. 
the reality is that their immigration status in America hinges on it. And according to Karthik Ramakrishnan, director of AAPI Data, the gap becomes more pronounced over time. In the affirmation article from the Times, he states how existing Chinese and Indian immigrants are often highly educated, and they then recruit their highly skilled relatives. He also states how family visas tend to go to highly educated people and families. So when President Trump and his Republican allies are calling for an end to family-based immigration, they're actually asking to keep the best and the brightest out. Well, we've always had a system of immigration that favors particular class over others, right? So when we're talking about the, the wave of Asian immigration that was available and open, uh, in 1965, it's not as if everyone was able to come, right? There were certain priorities, um, and so uh, it, if you had a particular talent, or if you will, or a professional skill, right, they'd be able to immigrate. So I always tell students, too, it's not like necessarily, right, you and your family would have been able to immigrate because they don't take just everyday Joe Schmoes or Jill Schmoes, right? but it's really about you have something you can give, right? That's exactly it. The U.S. government naturally vets immigrants to answer that question. Do you have something that you can give? The actual population of Asians in the United States is about 5%, and this 5% represents over 30 countries and ethnic groups that speak over 100 different languages. Some of the most well-off Asians in the U.S., may just as well have family members such as their parents and siblings back home in other countries who may not have something that they can offer. And that leaves them still struggling to get by and survive back home. According to a study conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2012 on intergenerational mobility, the gap in the standard of living between Indians and Indian Americans comparative to their parents' generation is the highest. This is followed by an 18% gap for both Chinese and Japanese immigrant populations, meaning that 25% of Indians say that they are economically better off than their parents were, with the biggest gap being between immigrants in the U.S. and their parental economic status back in India. I actually want to point out that the most shocking part of this for me was what I actually experienced while researching it. I got this information from the Pew Research Center's 2012 article titled, Rise of the Asian Americans. Little did I know, this piece was heavily criticized. As I was researching and came upon this article, I noticed from the start the stark parallels in the verbiage used to describe Asian stats that mirrors the exact language that was used in the article from US News and World Report that Dr. Pak talked about in episode one. Yeah, that's right, the same article that started all of this. Hard work? family values, and career dedication were all explicitly mentioned in the 2012 article Nexus Statistics that were given. It wasn't until digging deeper did I learn that other people were outraged over this article in the past for this very reason. And this article is still up. It still pops up when you're trying to find Asian American stats, even in the sources of information that I'm using to create this podcast from highly respected organizations such as Pew, is the model minority myth deeply embedded. So you can imagine, without the lens of this being a myth, how a reader would perceive that and even internalize that. But I want to return now back to Southeast Asian immigrants for a second as well. These communities face some of the highest poverty rates in the United States and are largely comprised of refugee populations. 
I'm Reggie Pagala. I'm a Filipino American. I immigrated from the Philippines when I was around four years old and I identify as Filipino American. Some problems that we still do, well, not personally that we face, but like because of our family is definitely the poverty of the difference in the classes, especially uh, because of my family, most of the family that lives in the Philippines um, lives in the countryside. So a lot of them are more poor. They don't, um, they're looked down upon by like people that live in the city. You know, it's hard for them to kind of like move and find a job in the city. I think that um, it affects my family because, you know, we also like send back money and we send back like things for them make it easier for them to um live there and you know sometimes they do ask a lot but that's a thing that's filipino um culture that you know we're expected to like kind of send back things and send back um like money gifts like because we live in america um i think that they look back they look at people that go to america as being able to hit the jackpot so when we first came here, we were in a very small one-bedroom apartment that we stayed in um, while my dad worked um, usually during the day back then. He, now he works night shifts. He was the only one that worked. My mom didn't wasn't able to work, at least yet, because she was taking care of me. Um, we had this tiny apartment, you know, like we lived there for a few years. Then we came and moved to the current house that we were we're still in now definitely it's like it was hard for us to like get assimilated into american culture um especially in like living in an area of chicago where it's back then it was predominantly like latino so there weren't anyone around there wasn't anyone around us it's just the fact that no matter what group you are um you will you're still gonna get like uh prejudice from even other minorities. So we were like looked down upon. We were different. Um, when our parents were struggling with English, you know, people would dance funny because we couldn't speak Spanish. So we couldn't spe speak like the two major languages that people spoke around us. So we were definitely uh, a little disadvantaged. Reggie's story of lacking a community and facing economic struggle is not unique to Filipinos. My friend Tommy explained really well how Southeast Asians were historically perceived, as well as some of the issues Southeast Asians face now. Hello, my name is Tommy Sulevong, uh, formerly known as Tommy Shi. I went to uh, undergrad at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I was a double major in Asian American Studies and History. One of my proudest achievements was establishing the Laos Student Association when I was a sophomore in college, and then being the president of it from my sophomore year until my senior year. And another one of my proudest achievements besides that is uh, having been the second Asian American Studies graduate of uh, UIUC. I am one quarter Lao and three quarters Chinese. No one really talked about the problems within the Asian American community, and even if they were talked about, it was largely swept under the rug and um, not really looked at. The model minority myth in a certain way is like trying to say that Asians don't create problems. So once we started talking about the problems, it was as if we <laughs> broke um, the code or something that we weren't being models anymore. And 
The model minority myth is problematic because it doesn't really apply to all Asians when it's used because the idea that all Asians are supposed to be smart, do well in school, have jobs, it just doesn't really fit the mold of Southeast Asian Americans, especially those who are refugees from、uh, the wars in Southeast Asia. Because I certainly wouldn't、um, attribute model minority minority to my dad's side of the family. My family is not the only family that had to go through、uh, war and、uh, become refugees and come to the U.S. or other countries.、Um, the refugees、um, settled in after the war. And the model minority myth, in another sense, is that Asian Americans are fine; that we don't have problems and.、Uh, We don't talk about our problems. We just we're supposed to stay silent. But with a lot of Asians, there's、uh, such thing as trauma, especially wartime trauma for those refugees. And、uh, the model minority myth just makes it problematic. One thing I found really intriguing about Southeast Asian American refugees was during the initial years. Let's say the late '70s, mid to late '70s, to the early '80s, maybe even the、um, early '90s. Southeast Asians were seen as kind of a, I would say, like a nuisance to society. I've read a lot of memoirs from、um, Southeast Asian American refugees, especially the ones who were、um, of school age and even young adult age, that they were relatively treated unkindly. When they first got to the U.S., I guess one reason why refugees were not well accepted was because the wars in Southeast Asia—that's seen as the war that the U.S. didn't want to get involved in in the first place. And then when they got involved, they never—they pulled out before the war even ended. And then、um, it's seen as kind of the lost war, the war that the U.S. lost. He's completely right. Southeast Asian immigrants are often victims of Western-initiated wars and conflicts, and in turn come to the states as refugees. Many don't have high school degrees or work in lower-income jobs. And I do want to point out that there is absolutely nothing wrong with working a lower-income job. However, for many, there's a deeper level of hardship associated with that. Poverty rates of Southeast Asians are some of the highest in the country. The high school dropout rate among Southeast Asian Americans is staggering. And only 14% of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, 25 years of age or older, have at least a bachelor's degree, as compared to 25% of the national average. While the Asian wealth gap is exhibited well with statistics, I also wanted to provide some stories to back that up. I got the chance to chat with Helena Kuri, an author who identifies as Korean American. In her children's book, *The Paper Kingdom*, which was published by Penguin House and featured in NPR, she tells the story of a young boy who accompanies his parents to their night shift janitor job, which then becomes a story tale adventure. It's a story of magic and creativity in the face of hardship and resilience, and it's actually a book based on her own childhood. My name is Helena Kuri. I'm very happy to be here, and、um, I grew up here in Los Angeles. But I spent the first two years of my life in South Korea, which is where I was born, and so I'm Korean American. And、um, I'm a writer in terms of what I love to do, but I'm also、uh, I also work at Sony Pictures during the day. I'm a VP there in business affairs. That's my day job, or I should say, my day career. I definitely have heard of the model minority myth. I grew up with it, actually. It's I think it's this 
belief that um, particularly Asians are inherently smart, docile, quiet, hardworking, all those things that um, are kind of stereotypically believed about a large swath of Asians. And, um, you know, I, I can say that sometimes I benefited from it and sometimes it was not so great. So I've seen both sides of that myth. And um, yeah, I, I, I grew up with it because I, I grew up in Koreatown at first and then we moved to the suburbs of Los Angeles where there weren't too many Asians. And so the teachers would just automatically assume that I was going to be the smart, hardworking one, the quiet one. Um, and so they would often put me in charge of supervising other kids or, you know, that sort of thing. There was that expectation, whereas inside there was a little rebel in me. So, um, so yeah, I definitely grew up with that stereotype. My parents actually uh, struggled a lot when we first moved here to the United States because they didn't speak English very well and um, they didn't have the skill set that a lot of jobs required. And so they started off as night janitors in Los Angeles. And so um, we, we obviously had a lot of financial issues. A lot of um, barriers were in front of us, basically. And growing up, I, I think that... Um, I mean, I, I made, we really made the most of it. I didn't feel a sense of lack, but now looking back, I realized, wow, we really had very little by way of position, possessions or money and that sort of thing. And so there was that uh, hurdle to cross over. And also just, you know, like I mentioned before, growing up in a community in a, a suburb of Los Angeles where I was really one of two Asian kids in the entire elementary school, um, I faced a lot of ostracism and it took me probably a lot longer than most kids who are new to a school system to make friends because I remember kids would, you know, call me Bruce Lee or Bruce Lee's daughter, <laughs> that sort of thing, or expected me to know Kung Fu, even though I'm not Chinese. But I know from my parents' stories that um, they really left South Korea to have more opportunities because it, it you know, it's, it's kind of your typical immigrant story. They didn't see. They didn't have uh, the the connections or the education to get great jobs there, and they knew that at in South Korea at that time you definitely needed the connections or the education or the way in in order to get the high paying positions. And so they came to the states hoping for a brighter future. And I think that's you know a very typical immigrant story. I think what they. Um, didn't anticipate, like a lot of immigrants, is how hard it was going to be and how long of a struggle it was going to be. I think they had in mind that, oh, their friends and other family members are, are going to the U.S. and they tell these, they write these letters back home of how they, they were able to open up a business or open up a restaurant and they're doing so well. And that, that wasn't our story at all. Um, we struggled, I would say, for a decade or more, definitely more, yeah. So the Paper Kingdom is based on that period of my life when I was three or four and my parents had to take me to work with them as night janitors. And um, instead of facing drudgery and misery while we were there, they actually made the experience a lot of fun for me. They would tell me funny stories and um, they, they made it a fantasy land. And so I wanted to capture that wonder and that sense of magic 
um, in my book. And the idea actually came to me one night while I was driving Wilshire on along Wilshire Boulevard. Um, the city lights were on, and the the streets were relatively quiet. And I just had such a strong memory of that time in my childhood. And I thought, you know what? This might make a really good children's story. It could be really interesting. It could be a story that's never told before. There's a page where the family is driving to work at night in their little rickety car, and I was thinking, "Wow, this captures that feeling that I had as a little kid. That feeling of a little bit of anticipation, a little bit of fatigue, all these different emotions mixed." Into that moment in the car where where my parents were driving us to work, and I think Pascal Campion, the illustrator, is so talented, and he does、uh, cover art for the New Yorker as well as animation work for the studios. And what he's really famous for are his nighttime images, and he just nailed it on that page. And the rest of the book is just there's just so much tenderness in the family, and、um, I think he did a really wonderful job of. Of capturing how it was for me as a child, I actually really enjoyed being with my parents, even though it was late at night, even though it was kind of probably stressful for them and at times lonely in this empty office building. And what's funny is it, my life has almost come full circle because I mentioned earlier that I went to law school because I knew had, I had to help my parents and. The office building that they cleaned was actually a law firm, so I think that as a child, that registered in my head that、um, you know,、uh, oh, if if you become a lawyer, you work in this type of building, and you can sit in these types of offices, and、um, gosh, somebody else comes along to clean your mess. You know, I I think that on a subtle level, I was registering all that. Hey everyone! Thanks so much for listening to this half of the Crazy Not So Rich Asians episode. We have more in store for you in the next part, so definitely go check out part two of Crazy Not So Rich Asians. Thanks, guys.